We've now come time to the, the preached word, uh, and if you've been with us the past couple weeks, I've been taking us through a short little series, uh, a selected uh, greatest hits, you could say, from my sermon series with the college students this past winter. Uh, it's a series called God the Questioner, and this will be our last sermon before Jeremy comes back next week. And so, if you've enjoyed the series, great. If you're like, I can't wait to get rid of this guy, Jeremy's coming back. So, look forward to that. Be here next week. Uh, I know he is really eager to see y'all. Um, but without further ado, let us get into our text this morning. We're in Genesis 4. In your bulletins is four is, is verses 1 through 9. I'm actually going to read all the way through 13. You can follow along in your worship folders or in your Bibles, if you feel so inclined. This is the word of the Lord. Now Adam knew his wife. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will it not be, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, Cain said to the Lord My punishment is greater than I can bear. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, oh, we are so grateful for the Bible, for in it is your revealed will for our lives, the person of Jesus put on display for us. Lord, we pray that you would make him so wonderful for us, that we would have eyes to see him, even in the blindness of our own hearts, even as sin has made us believe the lies of this world. Would you, by the power of your preached word this morning, through an ordinary sinner like myself, Uh, bring us salvation, whether that be for the first time or for the millionth time, that we might know of your grace and that it is sufficient for us in our weakness this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So there's a story. Again, I like stories. Um, There's a story of a man uh, going off to boot camp at the start of World War II. He's going down to Florida, and on his off days, he would go to the library and check out his favorite book. Doesn't really matter what the book was, but he would check out his favorite book, and in the the margins of the book would be these incredible notes. And so he liked the story, but he was more gripped by the gripped gripped by the by the by the notes that were written in the margin of this book. And so eventually he went back to the library, 
and uh, looked up who had checked out the book last. It finds out it's this woman named Hollis Maynell. She lives in New York, right? And this is before you could insta-creep on somebody, right? And so he, he finds out somehow her address and begins to write letters to this woman, Hollis Maynell. And then, right, World War II, he's sent off to the front lines off in Europe somewhere. He serves over there for a year. And over the course of this year, he's in dialogue with Hollis. He's writing letters back and forth. And eventually they start a relationship. And so, much like any probably, you know, young man would want to know, he's wondering, what does this girl look like? And he asks her, hey, will you send a picture uh, with some of your letters? And she very wisely says, you know, what does it matter what I look like? Um... You know, I'm excited to see you, but I'm not going to send you a picture. And so he eventually kind of gets back from the from the European front, and uh, I guess heads into New York. And their plan was to meet at Grand Central Station at 7 p.m. Right, first time they are meeting in person. They've been corresponding for over upwards of a year, and the plan is to meet 7 o'clock Grand Central Station. So his train comes in right on time. The doors open. He is so excited. He's about to burst. And as soon as he's walking out, there's this, there's this woman in a spring green suit that's walking in. And I, should have, I should have told you the plan, right, for them to recognize each other was that she was going to be wearing a, a red rose lapel, or a red rose on her lapel, so that he would recognize her and, and they could go to dinner and, and whatever. But here's this woman walking with a, with a bright green spring suit, blonde, super attractive, and, uh, and she looks up at him and goes, going my way, sailor? And as soon as soon as he's about to say, "You bet I am," he looks out and he sees this middle-aged, uh, more round woman with, uh, you know, like brown shoes, very ordinary, uh, very a very ordinary skirt, thicker ankles, and she's wearing a red rose lapel. What do you do? If you're him, what do you do? I mean, let's think about this for a second. On the one hand, you have this woman who you've invested a year of your life to get to know. I mean, writing letters, if y'all have ever done that, I think I've done it maybe once. I'm a millennial. Um, right? It takes a lot of time. You've invested in this relationship emotionally, uh, right? You've invested time, and you would love nothing more to talk to this woman who, who you've gotten to know. But on the other hand, you pretty, you pretty quickly realize that she isn't what you thought or want her to look like. She didn't meet your expectations. And so underlying your dilemma is the question, well, do you have a responsibility now to go on that date? You, all right, you've seen her. You know what you're getting into. Do you still have a responsibility to follow through, you could say? Maybe just out of respect. It's a morally right thing to do. Like, maybe... But who's going to put a gun to your head and say, like, you need to do this? You have a free pass. In many ways, it's the best case scenario, right? Because you can see what she looks like and dip out before the day even begins. I think more to the point of our text this morning is this situation brings out a somewhat complex question of what people am I responsible for in life? What is it that brings that respectability or that responsibility? Is it time invested in a relationship? Is that kind of what does it? Is it bloodline, kind of familial obligation? Or is it kind of a broader idea of like human decency? 
Uh, obviously, there's got to be wisdom involved here, right? Like, no way you could kind of be responsible for every single person on the face of planet Earth. So who are you responsible for? Maybe another way of asking the question is, to whom do you owe your time? To whom do you owe your money? But I think even more importantly, and like the question underneath the question is, well, why do you owe them your affection or compassion? I'm responsible for my parents, you say, for, for my wife, for my kids. At least with my parents, right, they've given me everything I have. When push comes to shove, I'll be there for them. And that, like, that seems obvious enough. A lot of you guys are looking at me like, he's just walking me through common sense. But, but here's the thing is like, is your code of responsibility for other people therefore a code of guilt, right? Like if, if XYZ person does this amount for me, then I'm always going to kind of be stuck in their corner. I'm obligated to pay them back. Is it a code of longevity? Hey, if I know you for like five years, that's all of a sudden kind of when the pendulum swings and like I owe responsibility to you. If you're like me, this is kind of a a hard and inconsistent question to to often pin down or answer. Uh, Because I think our answers vary, right? From person to person, individual to individual. Um, But more times than not, more times than not, if I'm being honest with myself, I'll give someone my time, my money. I'll take responsibility for them and owe my life to them if I can get something out of them. Gosh, that's even kind of embarrassing to admit. I'll take responsibility for them if they somehow serve my long-term interest. I mean, why else do you do anything? Work that job. They're requiring 80-hour work weeks with decent pay. That's going to take me away from my family and friends, my church community. Sign me up. As long as I can be guaranteed my own comfort and well-being. And y'all, this isn't meant to, to shame you know, very noble jobs and, and hard work and, and that sort of thing. But, but it's just meant to expose how my mind and, and I, I think maybe your mind works as well. This is how the world operates. It's tick for tack. Uh, one of... My favorite TV shows of late, my wife and I have really gotten into, is a TV show called Suits. And the, uh, the whole thing like, that's in this kind of corporate lawyer world that people will do for each other is they'll say, I owe you one. I owe you a favor, right? Which is to say, you did something for me, I'll do something for you. That's how our world works. It's this exact same question at the heart of our text this morning. Again, we see the tale of two brothers. Last week we unpacked God accepting Abel's offering, but not Cain's, right? And then Cain's ensuing anger. That was our question last week, why are you angry? And this morning, I want to dig into Cain's anger. I want to dig into the result of Cain's anger. Yesterday, or last week was, it was, a, was an invitation. It was an invitation for Cain to repent, right? Because nothing was a foregone conclusion at this point. Well, Right. Fast forward even just one week later, just a few verses later, Cain has now killed Abel, and we're going to dig into the results of what happened with Cain's anger. Verse 8 says that after Cain talks with his brother, he ends up killing him. And then verse 9 shows God the questioner again, coming to Cain and asking, 
Where's Abel? Where's Abel, your brother? And again, right, this is such an obvious question because it's not like God doesn't know where Abel is. That's not the point. The point is God, the master counselor, peeling back the layers of Cain's heart and peeling back the layers of your heart this morning. In other words, he's asking, are you in a relationship with your brother? How are you two doing? Do you know where he is right now? Maybe, maybe that's physically, you know, like uh, I drove in from northern Michigan this morning and I have my wife on fine friends. I know where she is physically. But I think the where of this question can be both interpreted that way, right? Geographical location. But it's also existentially like a current state of mood. Do you know where your brother is? I think Cain's response tells us all we need to know about their relationship. All we need to know. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Very simply, Cain does not believe he needs to take responsibility for Abel. In his mind, what does it matter where Abel is? Just let him do his thing, you know, me do my thing over here. What does it matter, God? What does it matter that I killed him? I think the ambivalence about relationship with his brother is on par, in this instance at least, with, with murder. Like the two are, are equated. Cain doesn't feel like he has a responsibility to Abel, his brother. And then, right, the text shows us that Cain ends up killing his brother Abel. And so I, I think that actually begs the question for us, what relationships are you ambivalent toward? Your neighbor who you're kind of just simply putting up with until you get another, either because you're going to move or they're going to move. Your, your parents or your kids because they're just out of sight, out of mind. Maybe that guy or that, that girl at church who you have nothing in common with, right? You exchange niceties before and after the service and you're just kind of ambivalent about how you feel toward them. However you might answer that question this morning, I want us to look at two points. Essential. Essential for any relationship. One, the responsibility of relationship, and then two, the cost of relationship. The responsibility of relationship and the cost of relationship. In the 1970s, there was this psychological study uh, conducted among 40 seminary students at Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, They didn't know they were part of the study. Uh, and so what ended up happening is they were broken into, into two groups. One group was going to uh, prepare a talk to teach on, you know, the, the possible careers that degrees in religious education could lead to. Probably took them a lot of time because that's, I don't know. Um, but then the second group, right, they were going to prepare a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, the, the two groups were given a few minutes uh, to walk from one building to the next, and within these two groups, uh, they were divided into three subgroups. And one group said that they were going to be on time, another group said that they were going to be five minutes early, and then another group said uh, they were going to be five, five minutes late. Tracking so far? Um, and so there was a man who was actually situated between these two buildings, and um, out of the 40 seminary students who are there and studying theology, are studying a love for God's word, are, are seeking and you know to grow in their relationship with King Jesus. Out of those forty seminary students, how many do you think stopped 
and saw this man right in New Jersey where it gets cold in the winter who's very visibly hungry and cold. How many do you think stopped and paid attention to this man? Sought to find out what this man's deal was. Uh, It's a Presbyterian church, so I'll answer for you. 16. 16 out of 40. You might be thinking, oh man, that's almost 50%. It's pretty solid. But what's crazy is it didn't seem to matter if they had just studied the parable of the Good Samaritan or not. There was a direct correlation between those who were told they were in the greatest hurry, those who were told they were going to be five minutes late, and those who didn't offer any help at all. Okay, so why, why do I give you this illustration? John Mark Comer, he's a pastor in Portland, Oregon. Uh, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, I'm making all my students read it this summer, all my ministry team students read it. Um, Comer makes the point that the number one obstacle to godliness in the 21st century, the number one obstacle toward your relationship with King Jesus is what he refers to as hurry. And, and you all know exactly what I'm referring to. It's the pace of life here in Ann Arbor. Jump from one meeting to the next. Schedule your free time three weeks in advance. Sleep four hours a night. Because that's just what it takes to work a career and to raise kids. Y'all, I am just as guilty as the next person. Comer is saying is, is, is that this pace is exactly what's holding you back from intimacy with Jesus. From knowing more of his heart. The Son of Man was always going somewhere. He was always, you could say, on mission. He had something to do. And yet, the Son of Man was never hurried. There's always room at the margin with his time. I think it's here, right, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan, using this, this example from this illustration that I just gave, that Jesus actually, he gives us a clue into what it looks like to know his heart, to seek wisdom and to know what it looks like to follow him, to become more like him. He pulls back the curtain, maybe for you as a skeptic this morning, but maybe even for you as a Bible-believing Christian for however many years, he pulls back the curtain for you to see what the essence of eternal life with him looks like. He says two things. I know we didn't read the text, it's in Luke 10, but for the sake of time, he says two things. He says, love God and love your neighbor. And that's it. That's it. Uh, if you're familiar with the text, the, the way it starts out is this lawyer comes to him and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what's interesting is that the lawyer's response to King Jesus is the same question we're all asking tonight. After Jesus gives this parable, and, and he gives this parable of what it looks like to love the man in the ditch, right? And uh, who comes to save the day is, is the enemy. It's the Samaritan. The lawyer doesn't respond by saying, oh, oh, there we go. I'm going to go love my neighbor. He responds by saying, well, who is my neighbor? It's like theological gymnastics. Who is my neighbor? In other words, it's the same question we're asking this morning. Who am I responsible for loving? To whom do I owe my life? And again, the reality is, it was the upright religious people People like you and me, who are the busiest and most distracted from loving this man who is half dead in a ditch. 
I can't tell you guys how many of my students say they actually feel more loved for and cared for by their non-Christian friends and family than they do the very people of God. Um, and it is just so sad. But it's not surprising if we look at if we look at Scripture. This is exactly the, the climate that King Jesus uh, was in and, and the types of people he interacted with. Right, he, The religious upright people who <laughs> would have said, this man isn't my responsibility. I don't even know him. He's not my problem. What he needs is just, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for him. And that's great. Prayer, good. But Jesus' whole point is, he actually is your responsibility. You have a responsibility to love people. To care more about people than you care about being right. Even though being right is good. <laughs> We all like to be right. I don't care who they are or what they can give you. Your responsibility is toward their welfare. I think even in our secular society, even among secular people, uh, people resonate with this point. I mean, how many of y'all have non-Christian friends or family that know the golden rule? And so whether you call it human decency or like our duty to one another... um, Everybody gets behind the point of caring for your fellow man. Uh, interestingly enough, and this is a little bit of a sidebar, um, right? I think so often what we see of secular progressivism is, is this idea that there is no king, but there is a kingdom. There is a kingdom. Because there is a kingdom, we're, we're going to really care a lot about you know, XYZ issue. And we're going to get behind this issue and we're going to plaster it all over, you know, billboards and yard signs and bumper stickers. Um, and I think so often, unfortunately, the response we have in Bible-believing evangelical churches, whatever that means, whatever that word means, um, is we say, no, there is a king. But if I'm being honest with you guys, I think, unfortunately, we neglect the idea that there also is a kingdom. <laughs> There's a king who's sitting on his throne in heaven and he has ushered in the reign of God through his defeat of Satan in the wilderness. The kingdom of God has come, so we can faithfully proclaim to the secular culture that there is a king in heaven, but there also is a kingdom. That is what covenantalism actually says. And that's how we were made. We were made for a king, and then to live in the kingdom. Adam and Eve were co-heirs, given authority to steward the resources of the garden. Right? And ultimately, like that is the greatest reality in the universe, is that it's relational. That they were meant for a relationship with the king, and then to be, uh, you could say, frontline warriors, <laughs> or stewards in the kingdom. And if God is indeed a trinity consumed in love for each person of the trinity, then human beings who are made in God's image, are inherently made for relationship with each other. Not just relationship with God, but relationship with each other. Deep, meaningful relationship with each other. Yet, that's not how most of us live our lives, is it? Uh, For many of you, COVID has been the loneliest season of your life. That could be true of my college students, that could be true of you in middle age or even older age. You've encountered the superficiality of the world we live in, the social distancing. And you've craved for depth, 
for just that human interaction. You don't care what you're talking about. You just want to be across the table from a living, breathing human being. And what you've come to realize is that we are Cain's offspring. When God comes to us and asks, where is your brother? We hear an indictment of our lack of meaningful relationships. It's like we get defensive and we're like, oh, I'm friends with so-and-so. I have this many people on Facebook I, I know and interact with. And our anger and frustration boils over at not being accepted or known to the extent that we deeply desire. And we passive-aggressively respond, what am I to do? Isn't this just like how the world works? Aren't guys my age when you're raising kids like, friendship? What is that? I go to work, I come home, I hang out with my kids, put them down, I hang out with my wife. Who has time for friendship? That's just the world we live in. It's not just me. Eugene Pearson, the, the uh, translator, author of The Message, he says that Cain's response, am I my brother's keeper? He says that is, quote, a flip and lonely question that already shows how alienated he is from real community. Cain's reply is in an attempt to pass the whole thing off as a joke. I was in a conversation with um, a friend on Friday night who very clearly had experienced some rough times recently, and I don't know if you've ever been in conversation with a person like this, but as he's describing the depth of his pain and loneliness, he's doing, he's doing it the entire time with a smile on his face. Like, you know, I'm just super lonely. Life sucks. And, and like, nothing really makes sense about that, does it? He's passing it off as, as a joke because to not would be uh, to be at the brink of tears. How else, could you, how else could you hold that pain any longer? I'm sure he's not alone with that tendency. Um, right? And Cain, of, cor- of course he's not meant to be Abel's keeper. Only zoos, prisons have keepers. But what God's question has revealed is that Cain is actually responsible for knowing where his brother is. God is clear that we are responsible for our relationships. We are responsible for our relationships insofar as we can influence them. As the famous phrase goes, you know, it takes two to tango. It also takes two to form a relationship. And if God in His sovereignty, if God who is very clearly at work in every crevice of the world today, if, if in His sovereignty He has put you in the lives of very specific people right here and right now in 2021, you have a responsibility to their flourishing. You have a responsibility to move toward them in love. And some of you are sitting here like, Robert, that is really awesome. I love that. But I don't think you realize my schedule. How do I make that happen? I am one finite human being. I have limited capacity. I can't do everything you're, you're saying and still love my family. Work. Whatever, right? You fill in the blank. And that's, that's a great, I think, observation. That's where, I think, really wisdom should set in. Where is the wisdom in making this feasibly happen? Because it's very clearly the call. We very clearly have a call to love 
our brother, to, to be responsible toward our brother. And so this leads me to my, my second and last point, which is the cost of relationship. In times of crisis, uh, we, want, we want friends and family around, don't we? Uh, I mean, I can think back to March of 2020 and right when COVID was setting in, uh, our family kind of packed our things together, no questions asked, and we just went north to hang out with my in-laws um, in Leland. And uh, it was just kind of what everybody seemed to be doing. We didn't know how crazy this pandemic was going to be. And so uh, just to be on the safe side, we're going to be with each other. And Jesus, as a real-life human being, was, was no different. He was no different than you and me. As he, as he hung out on a Roman cross, experiencing his agony, experiencing what it was like to be cut off from the Father for the only time throughout the, the course of eternity, there was no doubt. There was no doubt he must have been comforted knowing his mother and good friend were there seems like a, a kind of a silly detail for the Apostle John to throw in at the end of his gospel in John 19. But listen to, to verses 26 and 27. Jesus turns to Mary and John and he says, Dear woman, here is your son. And then to the disciple, to John, he says, Here is your mother. Philip Greenslade, who I've been quoting a fair amount the past couple weeks, he says that right here, right here in these two verses, at the level ground of the foot of the cross, the church was born. Listen to the words of theologian uh, Richard Bauckham and theologian Trevor Hart on this reality. They say, quote, Just as Jesus' mother and the beloved disciple would not otherwise have been related... Had not Jesus at his death brought them together and charged them with being mother and son to each other, so the church is a community of people who would not otherwise be related, but whom the crucified Jesus brings together, forging new relationships through his death for us. End quote. This is both a joy and an obligation. Ronald Wallace points out, quote, If Mary had turned away from the cross that day with some of her burden lifted, John turned away from it with a new and heavy responsibility thrust into his personal home life. End quote. In other words, it got messy. It wasn't clean. It wasn't nice. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't showing up to Sunday and leaving and not, you know, knowing anything going on in the lives of the people going, uh, you know, you're doing life with. And let me make this very simple. The family of the church is united solely around the broken body of Jesus. That's why we can be family and disagree on stuff like I mentioned last week, like COVID vaccines. That's why we can be a family and disagree over everything that would be tearing and ripping the world apart. Because Jesus' body was broken, it means that our broken, divided, and fragmented relationships... Might be, might be made whole in the body of Christ, in the church. That you actually might experience healing here. However, it's a costly and tough and ongoing healing process. It means laying down how much we think we're cool. <laughs> how much we think we're put together. You know, that those like weird other Christians aren't worth, worth my time. 
you know, they're older, they don't really know what's going on in my life, or those are their college kids. Who are, who are they to think, you know, they, they know the world? But, like, this is exactly, this is precisely why John himself writes in his first letter. He writes in 1 John these words. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. End quote. Remember how I said earlier that we have a responsibility, an obligation to take responsibility for our relationships. Following Jesus, being a follower of the way, being in the way of King Jesus, means that He has united you to His body, the church. It's why every week when we take the Lord's Supper, why we encourage you, if you've not been baptized, into the body of the church, that you would refrain from the church's meal, the family meal. It's because it is an oxymoron to be a Christian to not be baptized. You can't be a Christian kind of like doing your own thing over here. To be a Christian is to be united to the body, the church. And you can now take responsibilities for your relationships within the body of Christ. It is not solely you caring and loving for the people in your life. And this is what I mean. This is why I want so desperately for my students to kind of grab by the horns. This is why I want you to grab by the horns, people of God, as you think about what is the mission of the church. Why are we here? Are we here as just kind of like a reformed holy huddle and we're going to like study theology together and, and know, you know, kind of the cool things and the ins and outs of the Bible? Or are we going to be a people who are so consumed with the love of God as experienced through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are actually set free to go out and to love our weird, confused neighbor who drives us crazy, who thinks differently about politics in the world than we do? Like, that gets me fired up. And so you as an individual Christian, as you are inherently connected to the body of Christ the church, when you move toward people in relationship, just in your normal everyday life, as you are at work, as you take your kids to soccer practice, whatever. When you move toward people in relationship, as much as you either love or hate this, you bring the family with you. We're like the Griswolds rolling up in the minivan, you know, and, and you're trying to play it cool with your neighbor, but out walks Uncle Eddie, and you're like, he's not, he's, don't, don't listen to, don't pay attention to him. And as much as you either, like, love or hate it, like, this is your family. We got some weird people here. But it's great. It's great, and to the extent we actually own that, 
and consciously think through my individual relationships, oh man, I'm talking to my neighbor and she's in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic thinking, oh man, I kind of wish I was more religious. It might make sense of the world. I'm saying, yeah, I'd love to walk you through the scriptures. And I'm already thinking in the back of my mind, I want to walk you through the scriptures with the point of introducing you to the family. Because I wear y'all's name. You wear my name. That is what it looks like to be in the body of Christ. To profess faith in Jesus. And what I'm trying to get y'all to see is that this is a blessing. It's not up to you to love every single one of the people in your life well. You rely on your fellow Christian believers to move toward other people with you. What does it look like to host that baby shower for your friend with someone from church? So, like, there's power that in that. There's real power. You need the church if you're ever going to actually love people well. Your church is the collection of your brothers and sisters in arms. We are on the battlefield together. There is real purpose to your life when you are in the church. Those ordinary, everyday interactions matter. They are your compadres in battle. Life is lived to the fullest when you live out of deep relationships with other believers in the church. I don't know if that's a hot take, but I stand by it. And the whole reason this is possible, the whole reason this can't, this is just like, this is different than like a YMCA, you know, community group, is because the blood of Jesus actually speaks what Hebrews 12, 24 says, a better word. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Abel's death was no perfect murder. I'm I'm a big fan of the true crime stuff that comes out. My wife makes fun of me. Whereas people, you know, they might have gotten away with it. Abel's death was no perfect murder. Cain did not get away with it. Verse 14 shows that he is condemned to wander the earth away from the face of God. Verse 10 says that the voice of Abel's blood cries to God. It cries to God from the ground. And that is what brings condemnation upon Cain in verse 11 and onward. The blood of Jesus cries out a better word than Abel because its message is not one that brings condemnation. It's not even a message of revenge or giving back to Cain and his descendants their due. The blood of Jesus speaks a message of reconciliation. It's why you guys can actually be in community with each other and disagree vehemently on so many things that the world would say it's impossible to do relationship with each other. Here's what Oxford theologian Oliver, uh, Oliver O'Donovan says about this better word. This, this better word, this true word of Jesus' blood. This is what he says. He says, quote, It puts to rest the cry of the outraged innocence which Cain's civilization could never silence. Abel was not vindicated, but Jesus was. And by his vindication put an end to the unfinished business of nature's justice. But where Abel's vindication would have meant the destruction of Cain's race, Jesus' vindication meant a new beginning for it. End quote. The blood of an innocent victim nailed up between two political terrorists, though he was not one, is powerful enough, is powerful enough to speak salvation to guilty souls who are ambivalent in their relationships. 
The mark of Cain protected him even in his restless wanderings. But the cross of King Jesus is the door to the Father's house for all of us who are Cain's. Greenslade sums up this text by saying, quote, Whatever else heaven is, it is home. And home is a final feasting, festivity, and a hugely joyful celebration, a party that goes on forever. What does it look like to be a church that parties well? That parties faithfully? That parties in a way that demonstrates the joy of heaven and the joy of our risen Savior? He doesn't say that, I say that. He goes on to say, Jesus died to keep the dream alive. He rose again to make it a reality. He left us a legacy of brotherly love, which we can only gratefully and obediently cash in. End quote. You guys remember the story at the beginning? The, uh, the dilemma the man had, you know, do you follow the really cute blonde onto the train, forget the, forget the woman with the red rose lapel, or do you kind of stand by what you said you were going to do and, and go meet the, the woman? What do you think you did? Uh, like any kind of stand-up soldier would do. He walked off the train, went up to this, this woman who was not what he hoped, and he said, Good evening, Miss Maynell. My name is Lieutenant John Blackley, and I would like to take you to dinner. And this woman looked at him and just replied, Sir, I do not know what you are talking about. You see that woman right there? She, she told me to wear this. And if you had come off the train and asked me to dinner, then she was going to tell you that uh, she would like to meet you at that cafe around the, around the corner. Let me tell you what's difficult about this story. The Lord Jesus takes his red rose. And we would go running to do everything for him. Look at me, I'm serving over here. Look at me, I'm working hard over here. I'm raising kids over here. I serve the homeless over here. We would be so busy and work so hard for this red rose of King Jesus. But he pins it on the most unlikely. And he says, if you love me, love them. If you worship me, love them. If you respect me, love them. If you give your life to me, give your life to them. I might add, give your life to each other. Are you looking for the rose? Or are you just looking for the next best thing to walk by? You know, like, Reformed theology, church kind of appealed to you because it just like made the most sense of the world. Are you just here because it kind of just makes sense? Or are you looking for the rose? Are you looking for the most attractive way to spend your time? The most attractive way to spend your money? The most attractive way to spend your mind, your heart, your efforts, and your family? The question, where is your brother, is a call to look for the rose. It's a call to see the rose on the unattractive and undesirable people and then move toward them in relationship. And Jesus promises that when we do that, when we see people, really hard to love people, as worthy, as worthy of our time, our money, and our very lives, that, that is when we get more of him. That is when we don't just hear about the grace of God and think, oh, cool. But we experience it. We taste it. The, the words of Psalm 33 come to life. Taste and see. Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Taste it, brothers and sisters. Taste it this morning and throughout the rest of the week as we move into the world and seek to love it with the powerful grace of King Jesus. He is the prize, and we win him when we, together as the church, love the hard people. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you confessing how much we don't like this word. I don't like this word. It means a lot of sacrifice and awkward conversation. And uh, I don't like it. I'd rather go home and watch Netflix and ignore my problems. And yet, Lord, your word is true. Your word is eternal. It's for us here in Ann Arbor today in the year 2021. And I pray for my family. I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that we would be a church so enraptured with love for you that we might actually have the capacity to love each other. That, that actually might be true, that we would actually uh, be plugged into community groups and go and be willing to get vulnerable and serve at Hope Clinic and do these things that you see as so precious of our time, that we would not be so distracted by the winds and the waves of the world and of our own hearts, but that we would see you high and lifted up and that that would be our salvation, that we would rest in all that you've done for us. That we would be in such a posture of rest, King Jesus, that we would actually have the capacity to look for the rose. Give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it. Pray this all in your name. Amen.